Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. We've seen particular reductions in the use of arrest. We've seen improvements in other areas, school retention rates, for example. So I think it provides a whole-of-community approach to dealing with the issues which we know cause interactions or conflicts with the justice system. And so, yeah, I think it's been really important here. Burke is one example, but there are many other communities now in Australia, from Halls Creek to uh, to Port Adelaide to Cape York, you know, that are developing justice reinvestment projects at a local level. Diversionary programs to prevent and reduce Indigenous contact with the criminal justice system and call it out an independent Indigenous-led alternative for reporting experiences of racism. What's causing you to be that angry to people who've done nothing to you um, and start sort of, you know, deconstructing that a little bit and then I think you find behind racism is weakness and people can use their racism sort of as a as a front for that. So, as I say, I'm still learning uh, about this, but those are some of my sort of observations around that. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Over the past few months, much has been made about an increase in youth crime and antisocial behaviour, particularly in the Northern Territory and Queensland. But what are the alternatives to the criminal justice system? Professor Christopher Kinnean is one of Australia's leading criminologists with an international reputation specialising in juvenile justice, restorative justice, police, prisons and human rights. He's authored many books and has wide research interests that cross the fields of criminology, law and social science. He is currently the Professor of Criminology at Jumbana Research at the University of Technology, Sydney, and his new book is Defund the Police, an International Insurrection. Chris Kinnean, welcome back to to speaking out. Thanks. It's great to be here. Before getting into the details of your new book, I wondered if you could share with us a little bit about how you first became interested in criminology all those years ago. Mm, yeah, well, it is uh, 30, a bit more than 30 years ago. I was uh, doing some work up in Burke and, and also working in a youth refuge in Western Sydney. And policing was such a significant issue that it really sort of changed my academic focus, which had previously been on South Asian and Southeast Asian history, to criminology. So it was a big change. You've worked in the area for such a long time. I just wanted to talk to you about your observations about some of the changes. And I imagine that one of the biggest moments when you look back must be the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And I wonder now that you look back, what are your reflections on how significant it was at the time and what its impact has been since? Yeah, look, it's hard to describe its impact in a few words. I mean, it is 30 years plus now since the Royal Commission, but it really changed the political landscape in terms of how we understand the relationship between First Nations people in Australia and policing and the criminal legal system. And so it's hard to pinpoint any one change, but it's really set the parameters, if you like, for the discussions that have occurred and the ideas around reform ever since 1991 when the report was released. So sure, we can say, you know, many of the recommendations haven't been implemented or haven't been implemented properly, but I think its impact 
is much broader than that in terms of you know, how we understand the, really the oppressive nature of criminal legal systems in Australia in relation to First Nations people and to other people as well. Also, just before we get into your new book, as you mentioned, we've had this incredibly uh, significant Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody that's sort of set a benchmark. But since that time, we've seen the overrepresentation of First Nations people in the criminal justice system continue to increase. When you're asked about that trend, what is your explanation for why the statistics keep going in that direction? Look, I think there's a couple of answers to it. I mean, one is the punitive turn in relation to the criminal legal system generally, which was occurring in the late 1980s at the very time when the Royal Commission was being undertaken, but really accelerated during the 1990s and the 2000s. And so we saw a massive increase in relation to policing and the use of imprisonment. So I think that that's sort of one of the areas which occurred independently of the Royal Commission, if you like. And I think the other major area has been really the lack of any serious attention, particularly after the demise of ASIC, of any real engagement or negotiation with Aboriginal communities, both at a local level, but more generally in relation to the key demands around self-determination and sovereignty. So we've had those two things happening in parallel. And I think they go a significant way to answering that question. You've over time become a powerful advocate for justice reinvestment. Can you explain what that concept is and how it takes a different approach uh, to issues around uh, law and justice? Yeah, look, I think justice reinvestment has developed and is developing in a particular way in Australia. And so certainly for any of your listeners who might be more familiar with what's happened in relation to justice reinvestment outside of Australia, particularly in the US, the path in Australia was very different, partly because at the very beginning, justice reinvestment was seen by key advocates, particularly Tom Karma when he was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, as a way of linking with community demands for greater control over the way the criminal legal system works. So justice reinvestment as an idea is simply that we remove money and resources from the criminal legal system and put it into community development. Now, I think that that kind of simple idea gelled with the idea that Aboriginal communities, First Nations communities in Australia, should have greater control over the way in which the criminal legal system works and really has a point point of leverage at which to argue for greater community-level determination over the issues that people see as important. And I think that's how it's developed in Australia, and I think that's why it's been so important for... Aboriginal communities across the country, because it does provide that impetus for community control, which is really at the heart of self-determination on a local level. It is obviously a kind of practical application of the concept of self-determination. In the work you've seen here in Australia and overseas, have you seen evidence that the approach works? Oh, absolutely. Certainly in the example of Burke, which is often used because it's the longest running use of justice reinvestment as an idea for reorganising the way in which the criminal legal system works. We've seen particular reductions in the use of arrest. We've seen improvements in other areas, school retention rates, for example. So I think it provides a whole of community approach to dealing with the issues which we know cause interactions or conflicts with the justice system. And so, yeah, I think it's been really important here. Burke is one example, but there are many other communities now in Australia, from Halls Creek to uh, 
to Port Adelaide, to Cape York, you know, that are developing justice reinvestment projects at a local level. Your new book is Defund the Police and International Insurrection. I wonder if you could explain for us what the concept of defunding the police means. It's a concept that in some ways is not dissimilar to the ideas around justice reinvestment. That is that you remove resources from police and put them in to the community. And so it ties in with some of the broader abolitionist projects, the idea that what's referred to as the carceral state or the prison industrial complex itself needs to be challenged, it needs to be changed, and it ultimately needs to be abolished. So I think the most important thing about defund the police is it's not simply a negative catch cry. It's always been about presence, about not just absence, not just getting rid of police, but about reinvesting or investing in community-controlled approaches to deal with problems of social order or to deal with particular problems, economic problems and social problems that communities might have. And I guess you also make the argument in looking at this work that it's about taking resources from the police who are dealing with issues such as mental illness and placing them with professionals who might be better placed to be able to deal with some of those issues. I think that's right. In fact, disability activists have been among the leaders in the defund the police movement and calling for new approaches to working with people with mental illness or cognitive impairment or other disabilities. And I think that's a really, yeah, it's a really important example because we know, irrespective of whether we're looking at the US or it'll in the UK or Australia, somewhere between three and five people that are killed by police are people that have disabilities. So it's been a really important driver to the whole movement. We also know that there are very strong intersections between disability and First Nations people, black and other minoritised groups uh, across those countries. You mentioned this was an idea that had been around for a while, but there was a particular international moment with George Floyd that galvanised discussions around the world. From your perspective, why did this spark such an international conversation? Look, I think the conversations were already there. So it was not a phenomena that was simply tied to what was happening in the US. And I think that's a really important point. Certainly, the US, in a sense, became a point of of galvanising the issue, but those insurrections were already occurring. Indeed, as they were, you know, as we know in Australia, around black deaths in custody and that movement. And if I could just add to that, I mean, one of the other things that I have looked at in the book is really trying to trace the history over the last 50 years of this movement, if you like, and I trace it back to groups like the Black Panthers or the Black Power Movement in Australia, which the point of those groups initially was to confront police violence against Black and First Nations people. And so, yeah, there's a long history to this movement, which predates the kind of catch cry of defund the police. And we know the Black Power Movement in Australia or the Black Panthers in the US or American Indian Movement, AIM, in the US were all about confronting and stopping police violence, but just as importantly, building community resources, building education for First Nations people, confronting issues around housing, around health. And so I think, you know, it's always, for the, at least for the last 50 years, been an ongoing project, if you like, an ongoing project for liberation for First Nations, Black and other minoritised uh, groups in many countries. It is actually one of the really interesting things about the book, even for somebody like myself who thought that they knew a fair bit about this area. I was surprised at how global 
the conversations were. I shouldn't have been, but it's very interesting to see that history and its breadth globally put together in the book. And it does actually give the impression that the usual approach to the way that we police in societies is fundamentally flawed because you're seeing this not just in one or two places, but you're seeing it everywhere. And it's a similar concept that people are asking for. And you've also mentioned that when you've seen things like justice reinvestment, where resourcing is taken from the back end of the criminal justice system and put into things that are around prevention or dealing with underlying issues, they're very effective. So from your perspective, why is there such a visceral negative reaction to the phrase defund the police by some quarters of the community? I think one reason is that people really just see it as a, as a kind of negative phrase, if you like, or a, a negative approach to public policy without actually understanding the depth of what, what's being argued for that underpins that catchphrase. And that depth is really about challenging some of the basic institutions around policing, but around you know, the prison industrial complex more generally. And I think that's part of the negative response to it, a lack of understanding, but also it challenges institutional power. And so it's easy to, to deride that, the, that phrase defund the police without actually bothering to understand and to reimagine what society might look like without the current institutional arrangements, which are highly problematic. I mean, we just have to look at the number of people who overwhelmingly come from marginalised or minoritised communities and the effects that that has on people and families and communities to know that the current system is simply a failure in terms of what it sets out to do. And I think one of the other things that's connected to that, which I look at in the book, is that we need to understand the historical background to policing as to why it's such a problematic institution. And one of the things I do in the book is look at the way in which policing has been a fundamental of colonial power. And that's as true whether we're looking at India, whether we're looking at Kenya or Nigeria or South Africa, whether we're looking at South or Central America, Latin America, or whether we're looking at Australia or Canada. Now, policing has been a core institution in controlling, often violently, uh, Indigenous peoples, Black and Brown and other minoritized groups. And that act underpins the uprising, I think, you know, in a broader sense uh, in 2020. It is a powerful polemic in the book and you insightfully make that argument about the ongoing role that policing has had in colonial societies like Australia where it was part of a colonising project from the start and, and has maintained a role in it. It made me reflect that in looking at your work over the years, your work now is very focused on, I guess, deep structural changes like justice reinvestment and defunding the police ideas. When you asked what would need to happen as we continue to struggle with the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system as a indicator that the system is still inherently racist and colonial. What is your agenda for reform? If Mark Dreyfus rang you and said, Professor Kinnine, what should I do to stop this trend in incarceration rates, albeit that we'll have to bring the states on board as well? What would your suggestions be for the change that we really need to have in Australia? Look, I think there's, again, multiple levels to that. Yeah, we mentioned when we first started 
talking the important role that disability activists have played in this area. And I think that's that's one clear area for particular changes that we get police out of policing people with disabilities. But there are other areas. I mean, if we look at the, the really, I suppose, controversial issue around violence against women, there's been very, very strong arguments put by Black and First Nations women that we need not to rely on policing and the carceral system, but to look at other ways of approaching and working with the problem of violence against women, because we know that policing and prison doesn't work. I think one thing that springs to mind when you're asking that question was the current coronial inquiry in Uendamu around the police killing of Kunjaya Walker. We only have to look at what that community is asking for to see what some of the answers are. You know, they're asking for community control in terms of intervening around issues of social order and the removal of barn police from the community. So I think that, that there's quite practical policy processes that flow from that, which haven't been addressed and are not adequately addressed. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that the current ideas about reform are failures. I mean, people have been talking about the same thing for 40 years in terms of you know, increasing diversity among police, improving training, among police, providing technical solutions like body cams and so forth, and developments in community policing, which in official rhetoric might sound good, but it actually it's about policing the community, not community control of policing. And so I think there's certainly a shopping list that you could put up very quickly, but really they all hinge around a shift in, in the dynamics and power in terms of responding to real social issues which the police and the criminal legal system just simply don't do. Chris, thank you so much for stopping by, speaking out and sharing your insights and giving us a little bit of an overview of your very impressive new book. Thanks, Larissa. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. Criminologist Professor Chris Kinnean. His latest book, Defund the Police and International Insurrection, has just been released by Bristol University Press. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up here on Speaking Out, what are the structural and cultural changes needed to address entrenched racism in our society? More on that shortly, but right now, some music from Coloured Stone.
That's legendary South Australian band Coloured Stone with Magic Girl. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Earlier this month, racist comments allegedly made towards Aboriginal Rugby League superstar Latrell Mitchell reminded us all that racism in Australia still exists today. However, perhaps most concerning, the true extent remains largely unseen and unheard. Developed by the Jambana Institute for Education and Research in collaboration with the National Justice Project, Call It Out is an independent Indigenous-led alternative that records all forms of racism and discrimination experienced by First Nations people. Late last year, I spoke with Professor Chris Kinnean, Fiona Allison and Professor Lyndon Coombs about the preliminary findings of their first yearly report. So I want to start off the discussion with you, Chris. To start with, I wonder if you can tell us how the idea for creating Call It Out as an online register came about and then why you think, given all the work you do, that this is so important. Mm, Thanks, Larissa. Um, I think, as you mentioned, the the true extent of racism is not known, and that was a motivating factor in setting this up. And we know there's a huge discrepancy around reports by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about racism a discrepancy between that and the sort of numbers that we get through anti-discrimination complaints. And this has been proved already by Call It Out. I mean, the first six months, we had more complaints than what most of the anti-discrimination bodies would get in a year. And so for us, it's important really to highlight the prevalence of racism um, and it's far greater than what official data would indicate. And a part of the purpose of doing that is to make denial of the problem of racism much more more difficult to sustain. I think one of the other reasons that motivated us was that we really wanted to create a platform where the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people could be heard um, and where they could name and record their experiences of racism. So for that, that for us, was really important. Um, And just to give you an idea of of a couple of comments in the the register, I mean, one person wrote in that... um, Call Out wasn't necessarily going to provide justice, but it was a a real catharsis for him. That that was his word in being able to write and tell his story. And another woman spoke to us of of being brought to tears as she described her experiences on the register. There are more practical reasons, I think, in setting it up. It's it's less complex. There's less barriers to using it than official mechanisms. It's more accessible than surveys of racism. So one of the things that was, again, really important for us was to have something that was what we've referred to as responded generate a responded re- responded generated initiative. In other words, it's driven by the people themselves who want to record what's happened to them, and it it provides an opportunity to record a whole different range, if you like, of, of racism. You can record institutional and systemic racism, interpersonal racism, which interpersonal is mostly what's collected through surveys. Um, and racism in the media and online. And I think most importantly of all in terms of setting it up, we wanted to provide, again, a platform or an avenue which was an ongoing testimony um, from those First Nations people who have experienced and suffered the effects of racism. And so all of this is contributing, I think, to the larger story about the extent and the nature of racism against First Nations people in this country. Wonderful. Thank you. Fiona, I'll turn to you now. Can you share some of the top insights from the Call It Out interim report with us? Yeah, thanks, Larissa. 
So look, I'd encourage everyone to have a look at the report. We won't be able to share masses of detail in the webinar today, but just some of the key things that have come out of the reports that have been made to the register. Now, firstly, some of the more common types of racism identified include racial stereotyping, institutional racism, racism in the workplace and racism in commercial places. And by that, we're talking about ordinary things that people do, like going shopping for food or dealing with real estate agents to try to access housing. Um, sitting back and reading through the 267 reports that we've got um, sitting in the, the report that we're putting out today, I guess the sense, the overwhelming sense is that racism is all around us. It's extremely prevalent. As one woman said um, in the register, she had a very depressing feeling that she was surrounded by racists, both covert and more overt. And in the in the report, we've summarised um, the scope of the reports um, in the register as covering small private gatherings, um, racism arising in the street and in social media, in shops, cafes and buses, hospital beds and classrooms, and in our institutions, our government institutions. Racism also has multiple layers to it, so it happens to people more than once. Um, the register has got reports of multiple incidents and ongoing racism was reported in 25% of cases. And the other thing that came out strongly was that it affects all generations. So in the in the reports that have been made, there's discussion of the effects of past racism, racism on current generations of Indigenous people. But also there's a number of reports in there that speak to um, children and young people being targeted by racism. Uh, another common theme was um, aggression in racism. So 34% of the reports uh, spoke to various types of aggression, physical and verbal abuse, bullying, property damage, and so on. There's also a number of incidents um, reported about physical assaults. And the last thing I was just going to draw out of the incidents is institutional racism. I think Chris said at the outset that when we see um, when, often when we see surveys that are conducted with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about racism, interpersonal race, racism is a really common issue, like the example I just gave about the woman who's assaulted in the street. Um, but what we do know is that institutional racism is a major issue with significant impacts um, across all First Nations communities. So it was good to see, I won't say it's good to see, you know, stories of institutional racism, but it was it was good to see about 21% of the reports speaking to that issue. And within that, there was a lot of um, comment about government institutions that includes child protection, education and justice. Uh, probably the reports that related to health really stood out because we've got people presenting to health services with considerable vulnerability. They're looking for compassion and, you know, to be cared for. And when that goes wrong because of racism, there's really significant health impacts. Um, I'm just going to briefly run through too because I'm sure people will be interested in it, um, what sort of responses people had to these issues. So I know Chris is going to talk about people avoiding places and spaces in which racism occurs, which is a really big issue. Um, we asked people what their responses were and one of the more common one, um, ones recorded was that people were turning to family and friends. So in about a third of cases, that's what they did, which is really important. It tells a really important story about the solidarity and support that people find in their communities. And there's a suggestion in there for um, initiating a larger scale collective Me Too movement for everyone to come together and, sh and share their experiences of racism in order to combat it. Um, calling out racism is happening 
and it was identified in the reports as a really important um, step to combating this issue. So we saw 10% of people um, indicating that they'd reported to police or an anti-discrimination body, and 20% had either defended themselves or defended someone else who'd experienced racism. So one thing I just wanted to point out that we had, although we had just over half of the reports coming from people who had um, directly experienced racism, we got lots of reports coming in from witnesses um, and family and relatives, but particularly witnesses of racism. And it was, I suppose, heartening to see people stepping up and trying to pull this issue out and actually take some action. Um, one example is a woman uh, at a football match who heard a racist comment from um, a group of young guys behind her. Um, she called that out, so she called him out, and uh, then a number of other people sitting in the crowd around her jumped in and also called this out. One went to report um, report this guy to staff, and by the time they came back, he had voluntarily exited with his friends. Um, but, yeah, look, overall, people are just really calling out for more justice, more accountability, more serious consequences, while also discussing the considerable difficulties they have in trying to call it out. Um, another common theme was that, you know, people might call this issue out and face retaliation and sanctioning. So the lady who um, had her windscreen smashed, uh, she actually went to police and tried to report it and was threatened with arrest. Um, and then there's another account in there of an Aboriginal student, a young student who ends up being suspended for retaliating when he's been repeatedly called an ape by another student. And the final point I'll make, um, and that's a lot to absorb, but um, the last point I was going to make is that um, there's a really strong call in there uh, for others to take responsibility. There's a quote that we've got in the report from an Aboriginal woman who said, it can't be up to mob to constantly defend our existence. And it, in terms of that, um, uh, the reports speak to the importance of educating the public about their legal and ethical responsibilities to be anti-racist. And also um, for more education about Aboriginal culture and history to combat the extensive racial stereotyping um, that sits within so many of the reports in the register. Chris, I'll come back to you after that. Obviously, Fiona's covered a lot of ground, but from your perspective, what were the findings that you found surprising? I guess one of the things that came out, which we perhaps weren't expecting really, was firstly of the self-reports, so this is people who had experienced directly them, experienced racism directly themselves, uh, two-thirds of those reports were made by Aboriginal women um, and the remainder by men. And so um, it, at one level there was probably little difference in the reports on the type of racism by gender, but there were a few significant ones that stand out. So... Women um, were twice as likely to report racism in the workplace uh, than men were. And I guess to some extent um, that was unexpected. Uh, men tended to report racism more uh, in commercial spaces, online, and uh, in um, police courts and prisons. And so perhaps that's not unexpected. But the size of the uh, number of women reporting um <clears throat> racism in the workplace was. I think the other area, which perhaps is not surprising, but really I think one of the most uh, intense parts of the report that runs all the way through the report are the effects of racism on individuals. And, you know, it just comes through again and again, first of all, the pain 
the pain of, of, of racism, which comes out through anger, through disappointment, sorrow, humiliation, panic attacks. And that can be not only about the incident, but by the way it was responded to, uh, which, you know, the lack of response or the type of response can exacerbate um, those pains. Financial effects, given that there were a large proportion that were reported that were related to workplace racism, you know, the financial effects of having to leave work to, to give up your job. Um, and certainly people reported, you know, that all of a sudden that they're, they're out of work and without money uh, because of racism. The effects on children, which Fiona's mentioned, yeah, the, the first experiences of children seeing racism in terms of what's of uh, the abuse that's shouted um, at their parents and so on. And also on relationships, the effect on relationships as well. And all of these, I think, yeah, feed into that broader um, problem about the health impacts and the long-term effects. Suicide attempts, physical ailments, anxiety, depression, PTSD, all of these things, breakdowns, hospitalizations. people mentioned all of those. Um, as the effects or the outcomes of what they'd experienced. Avoidance and exclusion was another effect. So people drop out of classes, they drop out of employment, they exclude themselves from shops in particular areas as a way of trying to deal um, with these longer-term effects of racism. And I think two other areas really that, that came out in terms of these, the, the, the effects of it, were the fact that blatant, the racism was so blatant uh, in many cases. Um, and this came up in a couple of reports from uh, non-Aboriginal witnesses or friends, sorry, of people that um, had experienced racism where, you know, it was obvious that the Aboriginal per person that was there was being treated differently, treated racistly, uh, and the other person wasn't. And it was very blatant, it was very open, uh, and there was no apology about it. And I think the the final point in terms of the effects really is prevalence. I think as Fiona's already mentioned, um, it, the prevalence is not surprising to Aboriginal people, um, but it's certainly surprising when you see it all put together um, in a register like this. A couple of other points that that were perhaps not as expected was the the corroboration of accounts of racism between those who witnessed racism, who were often non-Aboriginal people, uh, and the victims themselves. And we saw that in workplace racism, where we had other people calling out racism uh, as a witness, but the, the accounts largely corroborate the, the types of things that were happening by, in the other reports, that were self-reported. And similarly, in the, self, in the health sector, we had uh, people witnessing and calling out racism by doctors and by nurses in terms of the way Aboriginal people were being treated. And I think the, the final point, which I think, you know, is, is a heartening point, is that that of witnesses, you know, stepping up and doing something about it, not just in reporting to the register, but actually doing something about it at the time. And I think that goes to the heart of the, the point that's um, been made, that confronting racism is a, a shared responsibility uh, for all of us. Thanks, Chris. There's lots to contemplate in that. I want to bring you into the conversation now, Lyndon. Obviously, we've heard... A great overview of the many elements of and the, and the many um, manifestations and the many places that people have reported experiencing racism. I wonder, just from your perspective with the work that you've done, do you think that snapshot that's come through in the interim report gives an account of the scope of racism towards First Nations people? Yeah, it's done a great job of giving an insight into those experiences, the the different types, um, and particularly the effects 
of that. And as Chris said, providing an option for people who, you know, I think one of the other points is that people who report racism don't do it first time it happens. So, you know, I, I remember my first experience um, of racism was at a rugby league game and experienced it consistently at something I, I loved. I loved going to watch my cousin uh, play rugby league, but it became a little bit of an ordeal for, you know, an eight-year-old um, as I was at the time and, and hearing you know, such venom against a family member and someone I loved. So, you know, picking up on those particular things and just sort of reading through that, that um, gelled with me, uh, particularly the the one going to sport. But, yeah, uh, it's hard for a, a report to sort of encapsulate the, the full experience of racism, particularly, you know, just based on, on the six months. But this has done an excellent job. Just following up on that, how can we ensure that First Nations people's voices and approaches lead any actions that we take to address the issues being uncovered through the Call It Out Register? One of the consistent themes that um, come across in my work and our work here at Jumbana, um, when you go out and talk to communities, regardless of the issue, whether it's health, education, housing, um, anything, it's not the first time um, that people have raised the issue, and it's the same with racism. Um, so the key thing is to listen. Uh, it's not that, you know, blackfellas aren't saying this. It's similar with, with violence and people pretend that Aboriginal people aren't calling out ranges of behaviour. It's that there's no listening to it or it's deliberately misinterpreted because people find it all a bit too much for them, uh, perhaps personally, perhaps emotionally, perhaps intellectually. But my one thing would be to listen um, to Aboriginal people and to believe them. Um, you know, it's incredibly rare that an Indigenous person will put their hand up, share what is, a, you know, many times very personal, very hurtful experience um, just for attention or make it up to to try and prove a point. Um, and, and that's where the, this sort of gaslighting comes in. And we've seen that with our work where... Indigenous people may have raised issues over and over and over again, but until it was corroborated generally by a non-Indigenous person, um, they weren't taken seriously. Their, their claims were doubted. And so those are the two key things, um, to listen and to believe Indigenous people um, when they speak. Chris, I'll come back to you now. Obviously, a lot of time and energy into the Call It Out register, and we're asking people to share experiences that can often be traumatic. What are you hoping the findings from the interim report will achieve in terms of any change? What, and what do you see as kind of the next steps? Look, uh, you know, it is the first step and we, we see a kind of range of different areas, I think, where change might occur. I mean, one of the things we want to do is get out to the community level and what we'd like to do is have a kind of mixture of advocacy, advocacy and assistance to people who have experienced racism, as well as encouraging people to fill in the call-it-out report. And I think, you know, we can have communication strategies, we can have a promotion, we can have advertising, all of that's important, but 
I think we're, you know, an important part of it and one which we're really deeply committed to is to getting out at a community level and to talking to people at a community level so that we can provide both support and advocacy if that's required, as well as um, expanding the use of Call It Out. And so I think as we build this, the the kind of range of effects are multiple, really, whether it's about anti-discrimination commissions improving the way they respond and work with Aboriginal people, whether it's about advocating for law reform, whether it's about advocating for other types of change. And so I think this is really just the beginning. I mean, we've only been, we've only had the the, the register up and running since March in the first six months, and we're, we've been astounded really by the number of reports that we've got in with actually minimal amount of um, communication around Call It Out. And so we're really hoping to build that and build this, I think, as I said at the beginning, as a testimony. I mean, yeah, there's all the policy areas that it can impact on, but for me personally, what I what I would really like to see this is as a living testimony to what's happening, and that's what we need to understand to go beyond it. What about you, Fiona? What are you hoping with the work that you do that the register mm. and the findings in the interim report mm. might lead to? Well, hopefully... Um you know, the stories that are being called out by witnesses, by people experiencing um, racism in the register and also the accounts of people calling things out in person that we've got sitting in our report um, might encourage others to do the same given the difficulties that people face in, in doing it. I think also we hope it'll be educative because one of the key themes that's come out is is maybe not, what well, as I said before, one of the strategies that people are putting forward to combat racism is to educate people about racism and its impacts and that might be particularly in relation to institutional racism for example which is still fairly misunderstood also there's some really important first steps in thinking about how self-determination fits into this space something that Lyndon's just um, been talking about but you know we need to listen to the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in terms of how they think this issue should be responded to. And there's already some really good examples in there to be listened to, but we hope that there'll be more coming through as well, given that we've only really just started. Lyndon, what do you hope can be triggered by a project like this that seeks to capture experiences and give a platform for people to talk about their experiences of racism? What would you hope might be transformative about that and what transformations are you hoping might might evolve? Yeah, I think it's education and awareness. Um, and, you know, even for someone like me who's had a lifetime of experience with it, with my family and working in the area, um, even some of that sort of struck me at, at different times. And often people don't understand an issue until they see it, until they experience or it happens to them. It's similar with uh, people's experience with police. You know, maybe fans of police, but um, it takes one sort of bad interaction and, and they start to reconsider um, the role of police and, and the relationship they have with society. So I would hope that people would be a bit more aware that they would be educated a bit more to um, find ways that they are comfortable with with intervening, firstly identifying it, um, knowing it when when it happens, um, and providing support to those um, who are affected 
um, as we heard from that example earlier. Chris, one thing that I was just wondering in listening to the range of experiences that have been captured, and the point was made at the beginning of the seminar, but I wonder if you have any reflections on it. And it's this, that when uh, legal frameworks are set up, anti-discrimination laws, sort of, you know, workplace uh, laws, et cetera, to combat racism, they're quite narrow. And I wonder what your reflections are about um, that narrowness compared to what we're seeing in the this interim report in, in the scope. Just be really interested to hear what your responses are or what your reflections are about the limitations of the legal mechanisms and response compared to what the problem is that you're mapping out with this project. Well, there's a yawning gap between the two. Um, and I think for us, uh, you know, it kind of relates back to that point about community. I mean, we've seen it over and over again. You know, the pol- policies and law reform are, are constructed in a way that is absent from the voice of community. Um, it's usually a bunch of white fellas dressed like I am sitting around a table, you know, talking about what needs to be done in relation to law reform um, or policy development. And I think, you know, the lack of intersection or interaction between knowledge of what's happening in the community, knowledge of ways of confronting it, um, the problems of racism and dealing with it, yeah, you know, it's that absence, if you like, I think, which is is a core problematic of in relation to the kind of policy slash law uh, reforms and development. And uh, and then added to that, you've got a problem where you might have what on paper looks like good policy, but it's not implemented uh, in any way that's that's meaningful. And I'm sure Fiona is busting to say something about the importance of direct action. Um, so I think she should probably have some reflections on this as well. Uh, Fiona, what can individuals do? That is a is a question. Like it's um, is something that you mentioned is being picked up is that people aren't necessarily passive when they see racism. But what would your advice be yeah. to people? Well, definitely to call it out on the register because we we need to kind of pull this story together, this national story um, through the register on what's occurring and what responses are in relation to racism at the moment. We've also got, there's some examples in the um, register of non-Indigenous people modelling good behaviour um, in the workplace or in educational institutions or whatever and um, and not necessarily calling out but just um, kind of educating people in their spaces about good ways to or how to avoid being a racist basically and Lyndon what's your um, reflection on you talked a little bit about listening but what are the other actions that individuals can take to combat racism I think it's yeah a bit of individual reflection and if and I know this is difficult for people who have sort of racist views and indeed express them but one of the things I've learned and I'm still learning about in this area is that it's never just racism within an organisation. I think we've learned that when we look at instances of racism, it's never just racism. There's there's something else going on. And when my experience with people who are racist, it's never just the racism. They're, they're not a great person, um, you know, that looks after their family as yeah, healthy relationships, um, you know, is a good person, except they're a little bit racist. It, it just doesn't work that way. Um, and I've also sort of tried to think around how we know that racism 
is a destructive force that it manifests in, in so many ways and does so much damage but in a way of trying to i guess you know take away its power a little bit and that was one of the things that i thought so you know if you're in a, a pub having drinks with your mates and they say something racist you know to shoot them down a little bit you know in a constructive way and you know what else is going on um what is causing you to you know lash out at people who have done you no harm that are just minding their own business existing um what's causing you to be that angry to people who've done nothing to you um and start sort of you know deconstructing that a little bit and then i think you find behind racism is weakness and people can use their racism sort of as a as a front for that so as i say i'm still learning uh, about this but those are some of my sort of observations around that that's Professor and Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. You also heard from Professor of Criminology at the Jumbana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, Christopher Kaneen, and Research Fellow at the Jumbana Institute, Fiona Allison. They were speaking following the release of the first yearly report into allegations of racism experienced by First Nations people. Findings stem from the online register Call It Out, an independent Indigenous-led alternative for reporting experiences of racism. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week for more stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and, of course, find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.